going to record this great word. Uh, that's right. Um, so we are um, kind of right in the middle of Advent, preparing our hearts for the coming of our Messiah King, who will be brought to us in a rather unusual way, a little baby in a manger, but yet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And um, we had some thoughts on Sunday. I, I kind of want to go another direction today. Um, but I do want to mention how important John the Baptist is of all the people in the scriptures. I think he has to rate right up at the very top of the people that God has chosen to minister uh, to the, the people of the world. And you, you see this as he's, uh, if you read the first few chapters of the book of Luke, um, he's so intentional in the way that he introduces John. And if you look at it a few times, you'll begin to see that he's giving John just about the same amount of press as he is Jesus. And he's very careful to um, put down some markers, historical markers. I think these are all really important in that it's telling us, listen to this person. This is a very important person uh, that God wants us to hear what he has to say. And so he tells us it's in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Um, and he goes on and gets very specific about that. But what I wanted to mention is, so there's a special person or angel that comes to um Zechariah is actually just doing his, I guess he's kind of hit the lottery in a sense that he's been chosen uh, to do the incense at this particular time in the temple. And so um, he's in there doing his, his duty. And of course, all the people are outside waiting. It's a very anticipatory moment. But he gets hung up in there. He doesn't come out for a long time. And, of course, everybody's wondering what's going on in there. And something quite remarkable was going on in there because Gabriel showed up uh, to tell him that he and Elizabeth were going to have the son that they'd always prayed to have and probably had stopped praying 20 or 30 years earlier because they had decided it was far too late for God to answer those prayers but the angel's reminding him right away that you're going to have that son that you've been praying for. And then he even goes on to tell him what he's to be named. He says, you're going to name him John. Of course, that should have been Zach, right? Uh, young Zach. But, but anyway, and, and so he, and right from the beginning, he says, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. Now that's quite an anomaly there. Uh, and I guess a little bit of a theological problem in some ways for us to work out. Um, maybe there's a meaning of the Greek word that it doesn't mean exactly what it's saying, but I, I think it means that, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, and uh, which makes him quite unusual. And, um, so, and then, um, of course, uh, when Mary uh, goes to see... While Elizabeth is about six months pregnant with John, and she just kind of dropped out of sight 
and didn't say much about it to anybody. But then when she was um, about six months present, pregnant with John, Mary shows up and she, she even says, she says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. So this is a really unusual happening, this birth of John the Baptist. And, um, and then uh, his father's prophecy about him, I find uh, incredibly encouraging. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. So I, I mentioned all that to try to, to um, I guess, build up the credibility of the messenger in order that we might more fully grasp how important the message is. I mean, this is a special messenger with a very special message. And of course, the message is a very short message. One word, repent. Repent. So that's that's what that's what John has to say. After all this build up uh, and all these extraordinary things that accompany his birth and positioning him as Luke does right alongside Jesus, just kind of one quid broke pro quo, one thing right after the other. And then both of their ministries began in chapter three. So you just get the sense that, hey, there, this is a big this is a big thing. This is really important. And then his message is repent, repent. So that word repent is um, very important. It uh, I think we all know it means to have a change of heart, to be traveling in one direction, to turn and go the other way, make a 180 degree turn. Um, but I, I'd like to just to say, um, and I hope I'm not uh, heretical here in this, but I think when you think of uh, Adam in the garden before the fall, here was a man that had, uh, I mean, he was the first one off of the assembly line, created God, created him out of the dust, out of the dirt, packed him together, formed him just the way he wanted him to be, the very hand of God sculpting him, making him just exactly the, the creation that he wanted. And then it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. He was created in the image of God and so he was a man just like us of the, of the human race. But I think there was something a little different about him he had it all it all worked the, the scientists say now that we only use 10% of our brain power that's we get by with 10% of what we're capable of and sometimes I think when I see an idiot savant who either is good with numbers or plays the piano flawlessly he this person may not be able to carry on a conversation with you but they can sit down at a grand piano and play anything that any great composer ever wrote, ever wrote flawlessly. And they, they've never had a lesson. They don't know anything 
supposedly about music, that they just have this capacity to do that. Well, they're using the same brain that you have. It's just different parts of it is working. And, um, and then some guy that's good with numbers, you might say, well, what day of the week was it uh, on February 3rd, 706 B.C.? And they'll immediately say, oh, well, that was Thursday. Because it's something about their brain that has... Well, you, I think that you can make the case that you have that capacity. Your brain has that capacity, but it just doesn't work. Well, I think it all worked for Adam. Everything worked. He was probably this phenomenal guy. And so it might have been pretty easy for him to decide that he could be a man without God. May, may, it, to me, it's ludicrous for me to think that I could be anything without God. But for Adam, I think it might have been feasible for him to think that just based on what he had at his disposal. And of course, this is all conjecture, you know. So, uh, brand me as a heretic, <laughs> burn me at the stake, I don't know. But anyway, that's uh, I, I, what I think about when I think about John the Baptist, I mean, um, Adam in the garden. So he, he made a decision that he was all he needed. I think this is at the heart of our problem. Is he felt like he could be all he needed to be. He didn't need God anymore. And so he passed that along to us. And we have it in varying degrees. Um, I, learned, I, I was reminded of it. I was down in Mississippi a couple of weeks ago working. Had about 90 trees to get rid of. So we can build a house where they used to be. And my brother-in-law was helping me, and he's pretty good with the chainsaw, you know. And so there's nothing I can do with the chainsaw that's, that's right. However I hold it, that's not right. However I run it, that's not, you know, whatever. It's, so I get over and over, and he's, he, will, he starts out by, he'll just begin to admonish me a little bit. You might want to do this this way, you might want to... But it, every time it would work out where at some point he would reach that point where he just couldn't help himself. He had to grab the chainsaw and start doing it himself. You know, he, he's just like I can. He had this idea of how it ought to be done and he could do it himself. And I think that that's kind of how we are about life. We think, you know, God has a plan for us to be to live in a dependent relationship with him. And. Um, we get rolling, but it's not long before we just have to take it back. You know, we have to take it into our own hands, take matters into our own hands. And so I think the, the repentance that's at the heart of all the repentance that we need is the repentance for that. Is to come to this realization once and for all. I, what, how uh, John says it the, the, uh, from, in the Gospel of John. He says, of mine own, Jesus, I can do nothing. Of my own self, I can do nothing. So how much can you do apart from Christ? Nothing. But so that's, I believe, at the heart of the kind of repentance that we need that gets back to the re repentance that causes us to need repentance for everything else. It's that, that one thing, that independent attitude, that I can do it instead of living independence. And so... I would like to leave you with these thoughts of what um, there was a person that lived um, two centuries ago. Actually, he was, he was actually a part of the last century of, 
a little, little bit. His name was Evan Roberts. And um, he was kind of the chief instrument in something called the, the Welsh Revival that took place at the end of 1904 and part of the way through 1905. It was just an amazing move of God that not only probably about 150,000 people were converted in Wales just in that length of time, and that's probably a conservative estimate. But Evan was a uh, young man that loved God, and he wanted to preach. He'd go to his, his minister and ask him to preach, bug him to preach, let me preach, let me preach. And uh, finally, probably just to get rid of him, his preacher said, okay, Wednesday night after service, we'll announce that you're going to preach, and anybody that wants to stay can stay and you can preach to them. So 18 people stayed. And so he preached the message and he had four points. He said that you need to confess all known sin in your life. You need to remove anything in your life uh, that you feel is doubtful or that you're unsure about. You need to be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly and then you need to publicly confess Christ. Well, the revival just began to happen from that night. Eventually, as I mentioned, some 150,000 or more people converted just in Wales alone. It jumped the Atlantic Ocean. You've probably heard of the Azusa Street Revival that happened in Los Angeles. It came from that. And so, and basically, if you really look at those four things, two of them really are dealing with repentance. Confessing your sins and getting rid of any, anything in your life that you think is not pleasing to God. And so that's at the heart of revival. That's repentance. And I think that's the kind of repentance that if we uh, begin to engage in, We'd see God's Spirit move among us with a holy fire again. Uh, just like it happened in John the Baptist's day. It's all of Jerusalem came out to hear him. You know, everybody was coming. Uh, and he wasn't polite. He would say, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? So it wasn't like he was this wonderful, syrupy speaker. But he proclaimed hard truth. But he had the power of God. So... In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.